City Limits. Brought to us by the People's Committee for Melbourne every Wednesday at 9am. City Limits is Melbourne's only hour devoted to our urban environment. To transport and planning and housing issues. To privatisations and our utility services. To building and or maintaining a sense of community. 855 on the AM band, if we can hear it through the noise and find it through the smog. City, City Limits. Okay, here we are, City Limits, and we're back for the first Wednesday of the month. In fact, it's the last, um, it's the last Tuesday of the month as far as we're concerned, because we'll, we'll admit we're back to pre-recording and we're doing this on Tuesday morning so if we get our times a bit confused please put up with us thank you um, I'm Kevin Healy and we've got Zeb Peak um, and we've got Karina too there so we've got three quarters of the of the team and also John yeah. McPherson our regular transport commentator and um, so well how are we all this morning Well, well, that was good. No one fine. said anything. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're all silent this morning. Uh, I'm just finishing, finishing a cup of tea. Yeah. I want to make you very, very jealous. Here we go. Hang on a tick. Just a tick. Here we go. Oh. Ah, I hope you heard that. That was the tea being poured. And what a sad day for you all. What a terrible thing COVID is that you won't get your tea this morning, but I've got mine here. Oh, it's, it's lovely. Terrible. I've got a couple of mm. ordinary I've got a couple of ordinary tea here, Kevin. So Yeah, right here. Yeah. Not as good as um, your tea. Not as yeah, good. I just <laughs> oh no, no, no. <laughs> but we'll get on to um and Zeb, have you got anything interesting you wanted to say? Oh probably not, but <laughs> you go first. Oh, okay, that's good. Well, that's got the show's off to a rolling start so far. Um, one thing I did want to raise was um, just the conflict of interest on Melbourne City Council. I suppose it happens all over the place, but there was a meeting about an item last week where seven of the 11 councillors had conflicts and they couldn't meet. Uh, yeah. And, and um, yeah, and, and so the, the four other councillors who, who didn't have conflicts are going to have to sit down and sort out the, the issue. It's something that, it was to do with a overshadowing in a, in a development and sunlight mm. getting onto public parks. But um, in terms of the conflicts, um, it's noted that, the, the, I didn't realise she was, but the Lord Mayor is a board member of Nelson Alexander Real Estate, which is interesting. Oh, wow. um, yeah. yeah. Um, mm. So I just thought I'd mention that, but it just uh, shows that these uh, the, the idea of donations, of course, to these people does put does conflict interests at times very much so. Uh, and just another one, the, the, the weekly ads by Clive Palmer telling us how wonderful his United Australia Party is. Uh, lockdowns affect mental health. But this week, he's, his slogan is, we can never trust the Liberal Labor parties, up to which point, of course, we can agree with him. But then he says again, and of course, once he says again, we can't agree with him because we've never, we've never trusted them in the first place. Um, yeah. But that's Clive's latest, and he's he's actually currently facing charges, and we know he's a litigious person anyway. But he's also being litigious against. Um, it's a with new fraud. word. Litigious. I like that. New yeah, litigious. That's right. Um, and because uh, he he transferred money from mineralogy, and remember he he took the the workers never got paid anyway. Uh, but he took money and put it into his own advertising campaign for his for his federal election campaign back in 2013 and he's being charged with fraud and dishonesty over that and it, it does it does have 12 years in the slot if you get found guilty that's the maximum he could get uh-huh. but just interesting that uh, yeah and the other thing with him of course is that he's united australia party the new leader is craig kelly who left the liberal mm-hmm. party because they weren't they weren't big enough on coal so they should prove a formidable election that'll double that that's those two <laughs> yeah they'll um They'll drag. We'll. I'll be trying to drag everybody to the far right. I don't know how much success I'll have. It's. I was reassuring. There were some opinion polls out recent, just this week, um, indicating that even people in uh, quite conservative electorates are uh, uh, thoroughly concerned about climate change and really want the government to get on and do something about it. Yeah. So I don't. I, I don't know whether the the, the um, Clive and his friends are going to get much purchase. Yeah, there was a, was that the poll um, 
by YouGov on behalf of the Australian Conservation Foundation? Yes. Yeah. That, I saw a news item on that because it says that in every federal seat in Australia, there's a majority support for climate action. Yeah, yeah. And even, yeah, and even in quite conservative um, country seats, yeah. Which, yeah. It was uh, quite interesting. Things, things have, have moved a bit in the right direction, leaving, even le leaving the government in their wake, really. Because um, um, we... Yeah, well, the government has been worse because in the last week they've, they've virtually said they're going to subsidise coal to keep it going yeah, and yeah, extend yeah. it, uh, which is, I mean, following, and it's all in the wake of the um, international report, the United Nations Intergovernmental Report, which shows we just have to act incredibly urgent, urgently, uh. and they're going in the opposite direction. They're actually, they're actually subsidising coal to keep uh -huh. the thing going. Yep, yep. And also uh, subsidising um, gas exploration as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at the same time as Keith Pitt, the minister, a few weeks ago refused to uh, provide money for a solar project in Western Australia because he, uh, mm -hmm. he said renewables are now mature enough to exist on their own. But apparently, <laughs> as we yes. said before, after a few centuries, coal is still a bit immature. That's right, and gas too, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was extraordinary stuff. He's a worry. He comes from my hometown, Bundaberg, that guy. He's, that's his electorate. <laughs> I, I wouldn't have said that, John. I would, <laughs> I would have kept that to myself. It's a, it's a, it's a name. It's a pit. pit the, the surname is a bit of a, something I've sort of recognised from my distant past. I seem to remember there were a few, a few student, students at school called Pitt. So. <laughs> yeah, well, well in, in the week that was my weekly satirical piece, I do refer to him as Keith Pitt Pony, but uh, <laughs> anyway. Um, but also, the, but since the report came out, you've got all these coal companies, a mob called Coronado, which operates mines in America and, and here at Curra in Queensland, and they're boasting about the profits they're going to make. Coronado, and Coronado wants to grow its portfolio of mines by seizing on multinational miners' desires to rid themselves of the external pressures that come with coal's carbon footprint. So they want to buy up more and more, and they keep saying that it's going to keep going to well beyond 2050 with coal. I mean, it's just mm. ridiculous. Mm. And, and Glencore um, has said it's, it expects record profits this year because coal coal prices have surged yeah. uh, or, or at the same time as we're told we have to cut back on the bloody thing. Well, people like BHP seem to be getting out of their coal, you know, quite ambitious, you know, getting on with getting out of coal. And yet, you know, that looks to me like they just want to make sure they're not holding the, uh, holding the coal mine when, when um, it comes to, to cleaning up the mess left at the end of it. Mm. That's right, but, uh, it's not, there's, but it's still going on. I mean, they they, yeah. they, they just pass it on to some other company takes oh, it over. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. But it's like they, with um, Woodside of the last couple of weeks taking over their oil and gas uh, facilities. That's right. Yeah, that's right. But it's still going to yeah. be they're still going to be produced, so it doesn't mm. reduce anything. Oh no, no, it just makes perhaps makes BHP look a bit better. Yeah, um, mm. but this company Coronado sounds like they might be the. Um, a bit, you know, a bit sharp in their practices, and they're confident that at the end of things, they'll disappear without without paying for any of the cleanups as well. You know, oh, yeah. which the private sector is pretty good at doing. Let's face oh, it. Oh, they've got it down to a fine art. Mm, mm. Yeah, uh, and the other factor with all this was is that in the the recent, it's still going on, but the the massive what they call over there wildfires, we call bushfires, the mm. massive fires in the US have destroyed lots of forests that were part of the carbon offsets. Mm -hmm. And um, so, so in fact, you know, I, you know, I, I think carbon offsets are ridiculous anyway. You just keep polluting, but you pay someone to plant a tree and say, well, yep. we've offset the pollution. Yeah. But the, those areas where they are doing that have yep. been absolutely destroyed in the recent North American fires. And so 
even the carbon offsets aren't working. But the other factor of that's interesting, mentioning BP, uh, we, we were talking about BHP, but BP, yeah. they've bought a majority stake in a carbon offset developer. So in fact, they're paying themselves virtually to offset their own pollution, if you think about it. Right. Um, well, that probably is, has some tax advantages or something or other like that. Well, it, and it, well, you get away with it. You, you mm. don't have they are they have they are fairly costly, but mm. of course, if you're paying yourself, well, you get rid of the cost, and you mm. still keep mm. polluting anyway. Mm. 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 Uh, yeah, mm. yes. Uh, well, um, well, of course, you know the Australian bushfires. What two summers ago? That that apparently the the, the emissions from that was something like two thirds of a year of our emissions, or something or other. Wow. Yeah. It was something huge. Yeah. And I yeah. don't know, would, would anybody have done anything to, to add them into our, our, our emissions for those years, you know? I doubt it. I, you know, that, 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 that just gets ignored and that just, you know, happens. And, of course, we know, we know it's on land and sea because there was another, there was a report recently about sharks and, and rays mm -hmm. um, and this case, this was a an academic report and the book Terence Walker, a research fellow at Melbourne and Monash, who lead author, said this is the first time of actually bringing them together as a risk assessment. And this is the fact that um, 132 different species found in waters ranging from southwest Western Australia to New South Wales have been uh, are, under, are in danger. Um, and critically endangered because the East Australian current which ships tropical water southwards is strengthening and making the Tasman Sea one of the world's warming hotspots as sea surface temperatures rise at about four times the global rate. The Lewin current which flows south along the West WA coast is also strengthening although not as rapidly as the eastern counterparts. Global warming is literally going to push southern sharks and rays into a corner because they can only go so far south and west, said Leonard Guida, a shark scientist with the Australian Marine Conservation Society and co-author, everything points to an urgent need to rapidly adjust how fisheries work. And the paper found that at present fishing levels, as many as six species already assessed as endangered, including the school shark and Morgian skate, will have their recovery hammered by southward uh, migrating rivals. And I also point out... Um, those sharks and rays that breed or feed in shallow waters will struggle to establish themselves if they get pushed off the continental shelf into deeper waters. So it, it's, you know, they're further effects of climate change while these people keep saying they're going to keep producing coal. Yep, yep. Yep, well, um, our oceans have been warming. They've been warming faster than the land. I think they have. Um, yes. I'm not sure about that, but they've also got the problem of ocean acidification. That's right. That's yeah. associated with warming. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Got a bit of a double-barreled effect going yeah. on. Well, Somehow, at the same time, there's still people managing to say that the Great Barrier Reef isn't under threat. Yeah, I know. Oh. Yeah, well, the, um, the the acidification is absolutely scary because the oceans have been taking up you know a lot more of the carbon than the land you know than on land i mean what am i i'm trying to say that the oceans you know during their acidification they they have been actually keeping keeping carbon or, or absorbing carbon that otherwise would stay in the atmosphere um yeah so they they the oceans have been doing a great job in one way in in in, in sort of trying to deal with the um the the um the carbon carbon emissions but of course the end result is is um, um, acidification of the oceans and then as you say Seb then you've got global warming on it as well oh sorry ocean warming as well mm -hmm. so yeah it just it just becomes a totally totally terrifying um, um, likely you know not likely but terrifying um, Certainty. Certainty or process that's just um, yeah. grinding on. Yeah, Yeah. now it's definitely a conversation about um, how much rather mm -hmm. than if. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And now, yeah. it's, now the conversation becomes mit mitigation and things like that. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I also recently heard uh, something about even if we took out all of 
the other industries responsible for emissions, but just left agriculture, we would still be going over the 1.5 degree really? warming. Yeah. Just agriculture. Find oh. that source again, but mm. that was quite terrifying. Well, it'd be, it'd be Western-style ag agriculture, of course, that would have the high carbon emissions, wouldn't it? Have yes. To have to be. The government tells us, though, that we're meeting our commitments in a canter. Um, <laughs> and and what, what, the mind boggles at what we might be doing if we were in a gallop. Um, <laughs> well, Kevin, you, you, you should, um, this is your area of expertise, the horse races, so you, right. you, tell, you tell us. <laughs> Most of mine end up in a canter, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. well, well, really um, what they're saying is we've found a clever way to fudge, fudge our... Uh, you know, fudge, fudge our claims of the our emissions. You know, and everybody should be happy to get on board with the fudge. You know, that's that's really what what they've done. They, that's right. Uh, and allied to all this, I mean, we've, we've recently there's been reports for twenty five billion was ripped off by employers who didn't qualify for JobKeeper but got it anyway, and paid themselves enormous bonuses and, and increased salaries at the top of their levels and many of the workers didn't get the money in the first place yeah. uh, and Frydenberg is now is saying well he's not going to go for that money because they haven't broken the law but as even the financial review pointed out that's because he deliberately didn't in the law say that if they if they, in fact they end up not meeting the requirements they have yeah. to pay it back Whereas he's going after workers whom he claims ripped off on JobKeeper. I don't know how they could have, but he claims they did. And so we've got the old situation, almost back to the robo-debt thing, where they're going after workers for, on JobKeeper, but the employers who ripped off deliberately at least $25 billion, even according to their own estimates, <laughs> uh, are being left alone. Oh, well, that's just, you know, that's just a bonus for being good guys and, you know, donating to the Liberal Party. You know, it's... Uh... Well, of course it is, and, it, and it's also, we've seen them put all this money now into subsidising coal, yeah. and there was a report last week that uh, that they spent, uh, last year they spent another $1.2 on the big four international financial companies, plus a mob called Accenture, mostly the Defence Department and the Tax Department. Now, why they can't, the public servants, we've said before, can't do that, I've got no idea, but all, all these consultants getting paid billions, and yet at the same time as they're lashing all that money out, they've said the state. They said this last week: the states must agree to reform the national disability insurance scheme before finalising a new joint funding agreement in two years, as new data reaffirms the cost of the multi-billion-dollar program is spiralling to, toward unsustainability, and so they're screaming they have to find cost-cutting in the NDIS for disabled people yeah. while they're pouring billions into JobKeeper that what shouldn't have gone to people uh, on these consultancies and, and subsidising coal. And that's just, you know, that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of, that'd be a phrase in terms of climate change, um, <laughs> in relation to the money they hand out in corporate welfare. Oh, yeah, it's so hypocritical. And I was just yeah. thinking about how now like at least last year during the pandemic things like job seeker would would double the the amount that they were previously but this year the people especially in sydney basically never got that double job seeker um and so they they're getting it even worse off yeah yeah and the, the melbourneites last year uh it just this makes me angry. <laughs> yes, no, well, quite right too. Uh, I noticed in the uh, paper today, um, the Age is reporting that Jerry Harvey is actually giving back um, six million, a whole six million to um, uh, to whatever it was called. Job was his. What was the money? He Job got keeper. Job keeper. Job keeper. Yeah. yeah. I'm yeah. sure he got far more than six million, but he's oh, no as doubt. a grace and favour. <laughs> Grace and favour uh, gesture. He's giving back six million. <laughs> so. uh, that's where he's, that's because of the major contribution he makes to Australian life, of course, John. Oh, of course, of course. Yes, 
Magnificent new appliances we don't need, yeah, yeah. And ASIC, which is the corporate regulator, the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, they've recently had a change at the top because a couple of people got found out doing a few things. But but also they were they were enforcing many of the recommendations of the Haynes Royal Commission, mm-hmm. which the government has government has run down completely, of course. Um, and and you know it, and rose someone this week said, well, they're running it down because they never wanted it in the first place. They were forced to hold it, if you recall, yeah. against their will. But all the recommendations are being watered down, and now Frydenberg is telling the new ASIC people that they have to um, dump the why not litigate mantra that they always had and stop litigating and also they need to well their purpose should be now to help business make more money effectively that's what he says the government expects ASIC to contribute to the government's economic goals including supporting Australia's economic recovery and um, it will Instead, focus on efforts on targeting regulatory enforcement action, etc. But um, it is important role to play in promoting economic recovery and confidence in the financial system, says Frydenberg. So again, he's asking them not to pursue companies, but in fact to uh, go back to pre-Haynes, effectively. Right. So they're no longer a regulator. They're they're just an encourager of business. <laughs> right. And just on. Yeah, on JobKeeper, Karina made a good point that also where is the public record for the JobKeeper payments? Mm-hmm. And, you know, people on Centrelink basically have to note yeah. down every single transaction that they make in their lives and feel like they're being surveilled at every moment and that at any moment they could suddenly mm-hmm. have a debt on their shoulders, whereas mm-hmm. the government doesn't have the same responsibility to make a record of... <laughs> Where they're putting their job payment. <laughs> no, yep. good point. Because um, in fact, New Zealand, England, even the US, with money they handed out during COVID, or still handing out perhaps, uh, had to be accounted for. And in fact, there has to be it's on the public record what they got. And the Labor Party has moved in Parliament, which won't get through, I don't think, um, a bill saying that it should be made public here, but the government's resisting it and saying that. They, they, that it should not be made public which companies got and how much they got. So you're right. That's you know it needs to be made public. The comments have been made that this is the most secretive government we've ever had. Mm. The, uh, the Morrison government. Yeah. They're when in doubt, when in doubt, keep it secret. You know. And and you do that most easily by declaring everything to be a cabinet paper because they don't. According to the usual rules, they don't have to uh, make um, cabinet papers um, public. But okay, uh, yeah. This, the Morrison government's done it on a on an industrial scale, keeping everything everything secret. Yeah, it's good to cheer us up this way, all these people. Look, let's let's get on to transport shortly. We'll take a break, come back, and we'll talk to John about what he's really here for, which is to talk about transport. Great. You've been listening to City Limits on 3CR. The media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth, and the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning, well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare and spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in, it's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people, and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep Radical Voices on air. Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. 
Female identifying artists aged 18 to 35 are invited to enter the Ellen Jose Art Award, a $15,000 non-acquisitive award. Ellen Jose was a pioneer in Australia's urban indigenous art movement and a radical activist and social justice campaigner. The award is given in the hope that it will support the winning artist's continued development by providing recognition as well as a financial boost. All six finalists will receive an artist fee and have the opportunity for their work to be professionally presented in an exhibition with an accompanying publication. The award is a partnership between the Ellen Jose Memorial Foundation and Bayside City Council. Entries are now open and close on Friday the 27th of August. Head to bayside.vic.gov.au and search for the Ellen Jose Art Award for all the details. A 3CR supporter. Love come your way What can I say You feel the hell You change your way Okay, we're back on City Limits. John McPherson's here to talk about transport. John, anything you wanted to raise around the issue of transport? Well, I'm interested that the... Um the circular uh, suburban rail line, I don't know what you call it, the orbital or whatever you want to call it, that the government wants to build, that they went to the last election with, you know, that goes right round from the southeast, yep. right round and ends up at um, Werribee, I think. Um, yeah, that's been getting a bit, that's been getting a little bit of um, prominence in the papers and things lately, um, with quite a lot of, you know, criticism of it really questioning how's it being justified you know the government finally came out with some figures that claimed to show it had a positive benefit cost ratio um, and was therefore was worth building but um, the benefits weren't very very big really compared with the cost um, and the the calculation was done with a um, oh dear, this gets technical, with a discount rate of 7% rather than the more normal one of 4%. And when you have a higher discount rate, that makes it easier to um, to, to cal calculate that you've come out with your benefits ahead of your costs. Um, so the government looks like it's been doing a bit of fudging there. Um, and, of course, a lot of the benefits are very... Are very um, inexact things you know the, the sort of things about you know access to facilities and those sort of things you know which are very hard to quantify and um, governments really don't try very hard to quantify them so it looks like you know it'll be a project that'll probably take longer and cost far more than they've de determined so far um, and there are so many things wrong with our present uh, suburban rail network that I would have thought you'd want to fix before you get before you start spending big money on this um, orbital thing. So that's that's basically my my uh, conclusion that it's um, uh, that it's part of it's part of this government and you know most modern governments thing that you you don't really want to fix a system or a network. You want to you want to build big shiny projects that um, appeal to the voters, you know. And you're not really all that interested in how, how effective the public transport system is. You just you just want to do something that looks good when people mm -hmm. come to vote, I'm, I'm afraid. <laughs> well, they're making some pretty uh, either outlandish or let's hope they were, they were true, but I doubt they would be um, yeah. claims. They, they say that uh, one of the keys to getting motorists off the road and on trains will be the speed of services. And um, they claim it'll be 22 minutes for stage one from Box Hill to Cheltenham. And the government says modelling on transport choices, which is yet to release. And so, you know, we don't even know what really those figures yeah. shows 32,500 motorists would switch to trains every day. Uh -huh. um, they, they also say that... Um, 
uh, suburban, the, the loop will dramatically ease congestion on Melbourne roads, encouraging thousands of people every day to leave their cars at home and jump on a better public transport network. It says motorists going between Monash and Fisherman's Bend in the morning peak would save 11 minutes, that's on the public transport. Once the loop is built through to Melbourne Airport, 600,000 daily car trips would be avoided. I mean, they're enormous figures. Mm. Um, but do you think that's likely to happen, John? Well, um, it, there's. I mean, the problem is it's going to be a long, long time before before you are going to be able to hop on the, you know, hop on the, the and use it for you know for a long distance trip trip from say the southeast suburbs to the airport. It's going to take an awfully long time. Um, wh- whereas there are things they could do to improve the way the present system works, so the people from the southeast suburbs get express trains to the city all day and then can change to an express train to take them out to the airport. Uh, and that may still, uh, even after the loop's built, be quicker, you know, going across from one side to the other through the middle rather than going right round the loop to get to the airport. You know, there are all those sort of questions. Would people, you know, be happy to go right round the thing? Um, Oh, you know, it's uh, again. It's just not. It's just not. Uh, it's just not presented as any. You know, there's. Um, it's not just not being presented as anything really coherent, as far as I can tell. Um, and and we'd be, we'd get far more out of developing what we've got to start with, um, rather than ignoring the fixing of the present system and going on to this new G whiz system, which apparently is going to be. Uh, uh, automatic. It's not going to have drivers, so that's another gee whiz thing to excite the um, the right wing media. You know, it's always good to get rid of um, staff, of course. Workers, get rid of yeah. workers. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because yeah, well, when they first mooted it, they they said it would wouldn't be completed until twenty fifty. Mm. Um, so it's a long way out, isn't it? Well, that's right. And that was, um, you know, they were first talking about it, but in 2018 so that was three years ago so you know times times passing guys <laughs> yeah <laughs> um i don't know i i uh, i just uh yeah well on a different note but sort of on the brand of fixing what we've got yeah i saw a news item um about infrastructure victoria uh doing a report on Uh, road and rail freight travel uh, and basically saying how it's really scathing and a quote from the report is that um, rail share of freight is stagnant or in decline and Mm -hmm. the freight rail network is underused especially on freight only regional lines and because um, compared to the regional passenger network the rail freight can sort of still have assets on average or like poor end of life conditions uh it's just been being run into the ground so they're suggesting that there needs to be funding put toward it um 70 million dollars a year for the next 30 years to improve the rail freight network but i'm not sure whether you have much to say on freight oh yeah (laughs) yep (laughs) let's not let's not forget freight no well, there are, there are interesting aspects. Victoria, um, I think, carts a lot less freight by rail, say, as, as a percentage than, say, New South Wales does, um, even though we, we cart many of the same products, you know, like wheat and other, other crops, you know, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, the... the, the the Victorian country rail network is still beset by the whole business of, of two gauges. You know, some of the lines are broad gauge, and some of the some of the other some of the lines now are standard gauge, which is the gauge that is supposed to be used all over all over Australia. Okay. So that's one of the reasons why the Victorian system it, it, it carries a smaller percentage of of, of rail freight. Um, is the question of gauges, which means you've got to have a separate fleet of locomotives and wagons for the for the broad gauge, you know, different to the standard gauge. So you don't have the flexibility of use 
of your rolling stock. So you don't use your rolling stock as well. And of course, if everything was standard gauge, the, the rolling stock fleet could be moved between states too. To com- you know, when the when the when the wheat needs to be hauled, to, you know, the yeah. bulk wheat needs to be hauled to the ports, things like that. So, the the again in New South Wales, the government seems to have gone on spending, you know, decent amounts of money on their on their country rail network to benefit uh, rail freight, mostly to benefit primary primary producers. But that's but they have spent the money. And they are hauling the freight, whereas in Victoria there seems to have always been this reluctance to um, to to spend up. And when they have done rail freight improvement projects in Victoria, like the um, Murray uh, Murray Valley Murray River um, uh, railway line improvement projects, which mm-hmm. has been supposedly has been going on the last few years, they've um, they haven't allocated enough funds, or the or the um, contractors who've been doing the work have um, have spent the money really badly, and they haven't got as much done as they calculate. And then they then they sort of rather than find a bit more money to finish the project, they wind backwards and decide, oh, okay, we won't won't do as much. We'll leave a few more lines semi isolated as broad gauge, and we won't we won't um, uh, improve them and make them standard gauge. So that's that's sort of that's sort of really been going on in Victoria for you know maybe the last fifty years, um, right? Um, and um, it hasn't you know it, things were supposed to improve of course when when private operators mm-hmm. of uh, trains started to be brought in to run the freight the freight services, but of course uh, as you were quoting before Zeb. They're just as likely to just wind, just um, wear out the assets and then walk away, um, and, and they're not interested particularly in keeping in keeping the system in good repair and, and you know running well. So if you don't if you don't do regular maintenance, um, you over time the speeds of the trains get slower and slower that you can al- allow to do on the track. And uh, uh, then in the end, it gets to a point where it's cheaper to put everything in trucks. Right. And um, is there some, you know, I'm supposing there's also some aspect of it, which is just that the road freight mm. market is dominating and is perhaps politically more powerful? Well, it seems to be yes. It it um, it really it does seem that there you know there are the big there are the big freight operators who seem to have the ear of governments, um, and uh, um, so uh, you know the money gets spent on roads. But but the trouble is, of course, if you if most of the freight is transferred to road, the roads get punished by the by the big trucks and also, and as well as the road the road quality declining the um the trucks get involved in more accidents and and trucks do have a higher um accident rate than cars um particularly when you when you look at um um um, you know accidents that result in deaths in you know in um Fatal. And it's often the, it's often the pressure the drivers are put under because of what their bosses demand in terms mm. of the times. So well, that's, right. well, that's all, right. Yeah. And your well, point just the other point you just made, John, that we then have to spend more keeping those roads those roads up to date uh, and maintaining those roads when you could be spending that money on on the public transport yep. alternative. Yeah, yep. correct. Yeah, the, um, the 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 truckies don't seem to have. You know that you know the unions have still got a reasonable um, role in in rail. You know the, the workers, the rail the rail workers, have still got unions who seem to have a bit of power um, to keep their wages at decent levels. But um, with truckies, they they seem to be just um, um, sliced and diced all the time and end up doing more for less. And mm. as as you said, Kevin, they're under huge pressure to. Uh, drive you know long hours and illegal hours um, yeah. Um, yeah so you know if if you look at them even the medium term it doesn't look sensible to uh, you know encourage trucks to take more of the market it just seems really 
really stupid. And particularly then if you bring in the efficiency, efficiency goals and the sustainability goals, because the tra the tra a train can haul a week. You know, if you look at the, the, the um, energy needed to haul, uh, uh, say, a tonne of wheat from the, from the, from the country to the, to the ports, rail uses about one-third of the diesel, power, diesel um, fuel to haul that tonne of wheat that is used, used with a truck, you know, the diesel truck. So the emissions are a third with, with uh, rail compared with uh, by road. Yeah. It's interesting, the federal budget allocated some, some money at least to investigate intermodal freight terminals on the outskirts of the city. Yeah. And I noticed in the last couple of days, the city of Melton has put up some proposals and they're, they're crying out for a western intermodal freight terminal. Mm. Um, and um, they also say that the area's B-line rail link is already overcrowded and the line must be electrified to allow more services in the area. Uh, Melton and Wyndham would have a combined population of more than one million residents and they say that the population expected to triple over the next three decades in that part of the world. So they're crying out for more public transport, among other things. Yep. Well, I think that I think the, the, the duplication of the line out to Melton is actually underway at the moment. They're not um, they're not electrifying the line at the moment, but I'm I believe that that is the plan. Um, I don't know how many years away that is, but um, when the track out to Melton is is duplicated, when it's double track, there'll be much more capacity to run shuttle shuttle trains to the um, to the ports from from uh, from a you know transshipment depots. And there needs to be one or two of them out in the western suburbs. Um, that would that would seem obvious, and, and others as well. One in the southeastern suburbs, out around Dandenong, perhaps, or Pakenham, and probably one to the north, where, where there's a plan to build one up. I think I think it's north of Craigieburn they're looking at at the moment. But you know they've been talking about this sort of shuttling of shuttling of um, containers, for instance, to the ports by train. For about fifteen years now, you know, this, these things get talked about and talked about and talked about, and nothing ever seems to happen. Whereas um, it has happened in New South Wales, there are already a number of these transshipment depots um, around the Sydney metropolitan area, and the and the containers in much larger numbers than in Victoria are being moved to the port of Port Botany um, yes. by train. You know, yep. I think. Partly because the pressure of congestion is is greater in Sydney, or has been greater in Sydney before the um, before the virus sort of um, um, you know has cut through everything. Um, they, 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 That's another thing worth talking about, isn't it, John? That the, where where was the future of transport in terms of post COVID, or if it might be a post COVID, but arising out of COVID, it, it's pretty. It's almost a hundred percent certain that our whole travel patterns are going to change in terms of car, public transport and road, particularly with work changes, changes to work practices. Uh, so that has to be looked at, doesn't it? Well, yeah. I mean, that's right. And you, you would think that, um, that governments would be, would be studying that, but there's so far not much indication that they're, that they're um, putting the brakes on any, anything. You know, they're assuming everything will go straight back to normal. But um, I was l looking at the British situation, when, and they're a bit bit further ahead. They have opened up a bit now, quite a, well, quite a lot, and um, they, they're finding that their their um, amount of traffic on roads has pretty much gone back to where it was pre-COVID. But um, on the underground rail system, for instance, in London, the um, the patronage has just just struggled up to fifty percent of what it was pre-COVID. So you know, even if it might be quite a lot, take quite a, quite a while for the um, patronage on the uh, public transport system to uh, get back to where it was. Mm, if it, ever, really. Yeah, if ever. Yeah, if, right. if less people are going, because a lot, lot of the a lot of the crowded public transport is on the on the routes going into the into the city. Yes, and. 
that they might be a lot less crowded in future because people won't, not as many people will be going into the city to work. Well, that's well, that's you know, that's a real possibility that that that's what'll happen. Um, it it does seem to be, matter too what the company wants to do. Some companies seem to want their workers back back in the office, and others are, are happy to continue with people working from home. So that'll have an influence. So there'll be, you know, there'll be some, the workers themselves will be able to decide in some situations what they want to do, but there are other situations, I, I suspect, where the, you know, the companies will decide what they actually do. Um, but if it, if it meant that the, um, the amount of peak hour travel or the peak hour was spread out, you know, so the peak hour was longer, that would be a good thing. Uh, but of course, the irony then would be that if the roads were less crowded because people were tr driving to work over a longer period, more people might might be prepared to, um, you know, use their car to get to work if they don't get caught in uh, really bad road congestion. Because um, the suspicion is in a place like you know Melbourne that um, the people who who travel to work by public transport, quite a lot of them, are doing that because. They find the, they found the car trip so frustrating that that in comparison public transport looks better, <laughs> and that might might not always be the case if the roads stay you know less less congested. But we'll have to see. Yeah, it's so tricky. It's pretty much impossible to to know mm. what the future is going to be like now. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah, well, you know, if people probably feel if they're in their cars, they're, they're, they're going to be exposed to less um, possibilities of, of getting the virus, you know. Um, but how we'll all feel when everybody's had two doses, you know, and, and um, doses of vaccine and all that sort of thing, and we're feeling, feeling a bit more bulletproof, um, it's, it's hard to uh, really assess. Um, yeah, so uh, it doesn't look like anything's going to going to encourage the government to cut down the amount of um, uh, road building it wants to do. The um, the um, uh, Andrews government's still got its big road projects. You know, the, the two biggies being the um, West Westgate Tunnel scheme and the um, Northeast Link, um, and they're both. They're both designed to carry massive amounts of, of traffic in peak hours, um, and both they're both going to have tolls tolls on them. So they, you know, they're going to be, you know, the government's, you know, done done the figures. It, it it apparently would know how much it's going to cost them, and how much they can get get from from motorists paying tolls to use them. But again, mm. you know. We're just uh, we're just now just travelling into the unknown with those things. We really don't we really don't know. Um. No, and um, actually, actually, something uh, the interview you did last week, in fact, Zeb, um, um, related to that, uh, I noticed the government's talking about next generation trams. Um, alongside the 50 E-class trams, they'll gradually replace the city's high floor trams. Um, so that's, that's a start, I suppose, to at least getting, um, getting, making, them, making them available. But, uh, but the only problem there is you've got to have stops that also work with them. But John, uh, part of that is that they're building a new three, well, they plan to build a new 367 million tram maintenance facility in um, in the west near at Maidstone on vacant site near High Point Shopping Centre um, to house these 100 new trams they plan to get in the next few years, uh, and they say this is because the current the current tram depots are all getting pretty full. Um, so I suppose there's a positive in there somewhere. Well, these days, you know, you you do. Um Pretty much, well, it, it's the way, it's what happens in Europe, shall we say. You bring in a new fleet of trams or trains and you and you make sure there's a brand new maintenance depot to go along with it. And it's, you know, it's it's probably a good thing because at least that means you, you've got an efficient um, maintenance facility that matches the, the new rolling stock. You're not trying to use a 50-year-old, um, you know, plant to... Uh, 
maintain the new new vehicles. Um, it might be out at Maidstone. Well, that's route. Is that route fifty? I'm not sure. I'm not sure, um, I'm not sure what the route's actually no. called. Anyhow, it's, it's, um, it's, yeah. it could could well be partly it's been put there because of um, the thought that there might be the need for jobs in the, in the in the west. Um, it could it could be that you know that's part of the plan. Oh, yeah. about two eighty jobs will two hundred and eighty jobs will be created, John, during well, construction. There you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh <Right>. yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's this is one of the this is one of the things about these grand projects. They're always more interested in telling us about the jobs that are being created to build the build the vehicles or build the buildings or build the tracks, <laughs> and not so interested in telling us about the smaller smaller number of jobs to run the run the trains or trams after they're built. It's a it's a bit of a paradox. These things. It's a, the money's really being spent as an investment in short term you know, construction jobs, it would seem, some of the time. But I'm not knocking them, not knocking them wanting to have, you know, modern uh, maintenance facilities. So I'll definitely keep the trams running better mm. than the old well, depots would. Mm. And they'd also have to um, build stops, of course, if you're going to have low-floor trams that allow access to people with, with mobility problems, you're mm -hmm. going to have to build stops that accommodate those trams to allow it to happen. Yeah, well, that's another point. The number of um, the number of stops that have been built, you know, to give level access um, into the, even the low floor trams is is still, you know, pretty pathetic, pathetically small number. At the rate they're going, it's you know, I think it's another twenty years before they've got all the stops covered with um, with proper level level access into the trams. Mm. So that Can again is. Yeah, we touched on that briefly last right. uh, last interview and just the fact that part of that is because making those stops is impinging on car space yeah, on yeah. roads and yeah, the yeah. car rules supreme. So. Well, I have, I have developed, a, you know, a, a couple of kind of, a couple of kind of stops which seem to work okay for everybody as long, you know, as long as you can expect the car the car drivers to pay attention and um, stop when they're supposed to stop and slow down. <laughs> <laughs> slow down, you know. Um, I think they, I think they have worked out uh, how to how to build the low low floor stops, but uh, um, the number being built per year is pretty pretty pathetic. And that's you know that's a, that's to me is an issue. You know, of, well, why are you? Talking about this orbital rail thing when you when you haven't even got all the, the tram stops um, organised for, for level boarding, you know, on the present tram network. When they put, well, you, you know, can get on at the low, but you can, but the stop the stop where you can get on, you can get on, then you can go out to the terminus and come back and get off again. It's pretty good. Go yeah. to a trip. Well, that's right. If that's what if that's what the trams are for, entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is quite ridiculous, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You, 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 and it's also, I mean, they keep promising, as I, we keep saying, I always say it's 15 years ahead. And in the interview last week, they had given a date, but the interviewees made the point, um, and Deb will, uh, Zeb will back this up, um, that they're way behind even in their own, in yeah. their own rescheduled timetable. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it's um, another another aspect that makes me grind my teeth is you know if you listen if you listen to the traffic reports on or say you know the ABC station in the morning or during the day, I don't think a day goes past when when they don't report that some railway line is not one of the suburban lines at least one if not more isn't working properly because there's been some some technical fault. And, and so train, trams aren't trains trains usually aren't running um, for the next nobody knows how long because mm -hmm. they've had to stop and oh yes buses will be provided but of course nobody knows when the buses are going to start running so you know it's 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 still a system that you know is not reliable I would I would assert you have to say that it's not reliable when when things go something can go wrong. Every day, mm. and 
so you know people people are no longer really prepared to put up with that sort of thing they might have put up with it once because you know all they had was this electric suburban train but not anymore and unless you know you often don't know where the bus is running from because often the buses don't go to the station they go to the nearest main road or whatever correct and things can go wrong and then you're just left hanging around either at a rail station or a, or a tram stop with, not, with absolutely no information about what's going on anyhow. And usually, as I said, with, with the trains particularly, they'll just say, oh, yes, we're, we're, there, are, there are buses on the way to, to, to take over from the trains. But, but um, yeah. there's no detail. And as you say, it can mean that they're running from, the, from a corner, corner stop that's a, f- a few hundred metres away from the station. It's all very slapdash. Um, I think on that chewy note, we're just about running out of time, John. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, just before we go, back on the truckies conversation, there's actually, um, there's just been a strike from the truck drivers that work for that company, Toll. Oh, yes, Um, that's right. There has. Yeah. So their bargaining agreement broke down um basically because they weren't i i think they didn't get a pay rise last year because of the pandemic um and so this year they're trying to argue for a better pay rise yeah well many many yeah yeah, many many companies have had had uh, rises in profits this year so that would include tolls um customers so you know, it should it well, could well be the toll are, are well and truly in a position to pay their drivers better because they can their their clients can afford higher rates for hauling their their freight. Well, it's now expanded in fact to other companies, but toll toll was trying to cut wages and conditions. It, it wanted to say new employees would work on lower wages and conditions. Oh, it well. wanted to cut back. It wanted it wanted to have more casual casual workers and not full time staff, and it wanted yep. the casual workers not to have over, be work overtime without being paid overtime. So, right. you know, it, it's an absolute attack on workers' conditions. Yep, well, yeah, totally, it's the same totally. attack that is made again and again. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, well... Gee, uh, it's been a cheery program this morning, yeah, hasn't it? Yeah. Sure has, folks. <laughs> <laughs> but, look, John, thanks for uh, thanks <laughs> for being available again. We'll do it again next month, and uh, hopefully by next month we might be back in the studio and be yeah. able to... Uh, yeah, um, well, maybe, we're, maybe we're suffering suffering COVID, at least I'm suffering COVID blues a bit. I'll blame that. Yeah, well, not me. It's not yeah, me. Well, COVID, yeah. But if people, if people are today's done them the world of good, that's for sure. Um, <laughs> and uh, and John, look, you're the guest. Thank thank um, Karina for doing a magnificent job because she's been keeping us on air all this time. Thanks, Karina. Thanks, Sue. Nice to see you. Yeah, nice to see you too. Nice to have a chat, Kev. Okay, and next week we're looking at energy issues and. Um, well, next week we're looking at energy issues. That's it. Okay. That's <laughs> it for the limits. And uh, thanks, Zeb. We'll, uh, next week we're back again. 3CR. The Maritime Union of Australia is pleased to announce the struggles that made us post a design prize. With a five grand first prize, the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 and featured in a special May Day edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter. We're talking about ecological thinning and subsidised longing, but we basically mean the same things, don't we, here? Wherever 
There are chemical corporations around the world. They're constantly trying to chip away at regulations. Earth Matters, bringing you environmental and social justice stories from developments in government and industry to the campaigns and communities that are standing up to them. Earth Matters plays at 11am Sunday and 6.30am Wednesday. Turn your dial to 855am or listen online at 3cr.org.au. While the headlines have subsided, the nuclear power plant is still not under control with the spent fuel rods removed from only one out of four reactors. Law needs to change so that uh, our rights can be recognised so that decisions in relation to the use and exploitation of our lands is ours. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.